what AOC does or doesn't do is kind of irrelevant, I think. Uh, what's relevant is that we get out and support those people on the ground that are building movements to push back. That's our only hope. Now, if you actually confront the centers of power the way Julian did or the way Snowden did uh, and hurt them, uh, then you get to see how power works and how vicious they are. That's what politicians do. That's their job, to gaslight and manipulate people. That's, that is a politician. I mean, what do you think the main characteristics of a politician is? It wasn't because I was doing Russia propaganda. It's because with the 2017 Director of National Intelligence report in those seven pages, they gave a voice to Black Lives Matter activists, party candidates, anti-imperialists, anti that's why. And that's why they came for me. I mean, look, Brianna, they're just politicians. I mean, you know, that's who they are. These are a very flawed class of human beings. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, but when you don't have anything else, when it feels like well, we you got, have we got some else. called Amazon workers. It's that's that's what we got, and they're not the left. They're not like wasting their time destroying each other on Twitter. Well, I want to ask you about that. I mean, what do you make of this infighting now? This conflict between members of the left. Well, as we say in Arabic, "kalam fadi," which means empty talk. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, it's just an utter waste of time. I, I remember I was with Noam Chomsky, and I had a phone. He goes, I can't believe you got one of those things. I mean, yes, <laughs> Noam is definitely more pure than I am. I kept missing That's appointments because my, my agent would like, you know, I, ha I had like a little flip phone until everybody else had <laughs> smartphones for years. But I would go to lunch. My agent wasn't there because she'd go, oh, well, I like texted you. And so I, no, I'd like to throw my phone, you know. Uh, and like anybody, it kind of draws you in in very pernicious ways. Look, the, the real left in this country is not tweeting, you know, hate messages because people are anti-vaxxers right, or whatever but the, the hell they... But the, but the reality is that there is some cohort, maybe they completely don't matter, but there is some cohort of people who saw that... So here's what happened. I'm sorry to have to be the one to deliver this news, but I do think that's what, sometimes what happens online matters. So as I understand it, on the precipice of Amazon's victory, AOC quote tweeted, you know, an article about how the vote tally was coming in with uh, three strong arm emojis, basically approving like, yes, you know, and some people were frustrated with this because they felt as though she had abandoned the workers plight. It's not in her district, but it's near to her district. Apparently she was scheduled at some point to stand with demonstrators and, and had to cancel due to what she says is a scheduling conflict. And some people felt like she was kind of claiming, stealing valor, as it were, uh, by, quote, tweeting this article. And whatever you think about whether or not that's accurate or whether quote, a quote tweet is pretty inoffensive or what have you, it has become a lightning rod for people who have this criticism of the squad that says you should have been using your platform. You should have been using your Twitter account with 11 million followers. You should have been using the fact that you can get these interviews in New York Magazine and Vanity Fair and stuff to draw attention to the plight of these Amazon workers and boosted them in a way that you haven't done. Right. Well, she's been told by Pelosi and the Democratic leadership exactly how far she can go if she wants to keep her seat. And she's decided to keep her seat. Bernie's the same. Bernie's no different. I mean, that's how politics works. I mean, I don't expect much from politicians. You know, Ralph Nader says our last liberal president was Richard Nixon because we still had movements, and he, he was scared of them. There's a wonderful scene, I've often quoted it, from Kissinger's memoirs, where there's 
tens of thousands of anti-war protesters surrounding the White House. And Nixon has yeah. put empty city buses around it. And he's terrified. He's looking through the window saying, they're going to, Henry, they're going to break down the barricades and get us. So it's movements. I mean, Howard Zinn, I think, uh, put that argument to rest in a people's history of the United States. Every opening, the country was founded as a very retrograde, anti-democratic, uh, slaveholding, aristocratic. I mean, George Washington was the wealthiest person in the United States. And every opening was paid for with blood. Workers, civil rights workers, abolitionists, you know, all of them. And that is the true history. That's why his book is so important. So I just don't waste a lot of time on politicians. I guess part of my frustration, though, is that it does feel like it lets these folks off the hook, whether or not you believe they're acting in good faith or whether they've been censored by Democratic establishment and their hands have been tied or whatever. We've never had politicians that have at least elected politicians at this level who have marketed themselves and framed themselves as conduits of the people's interest so directly, elected with grassroots money, genuinely so, genuinely free from that kind of base level of corruption that most of the corporate Democrats have. And when we say that they're powerless, I guess my knee-jerk response, my my unwillingness to accept that isn't because I think that they are like superhuman and I think they can just like will good things to happen, but because it feels almost like letting them off the hook for not doing what they said they were going to do. If, if what made Nixon our last progressive president was school buses and protesters and the thousands around circling the White House, then look, why isn't AOC and the rest of them with their huge platforms well, calling for people to show up on April 4th for the student debt protest in front of the White House? Because she doesn't want to be targeted by the Democratic leadership the way Dennis Kucinich was targeted. Yes, I mean, the Democrats... Isn't it more fair then to say that not that she's powerless, but that she refuses to use her power? Well, she she's decided that her career is more important. She's not going to stand up and deep six her career. That's that's not uncommon among politicians. And it's not true that we didn't have progressive politicians. And we had La Follette. We had all sorts of figures uh, in the 30s and 40s who came out of the labor movement, uh, Eugene V. Debs, Henry Wallace. I knew George McGovern at the end of his life. McGovern was real. He was real. And of course, once he got the nomination, you had the Democratic hierarchy uh, join forces with the Republican hierarchy to destroy him. When I was 14, I convinced my parents to let me work 10 hours a day in the local George McGovern headquarters. And uh, I, now I think when I had dinner with him, he was in his 80s. And I said, uh, and you never sold me out, which is why I'm here. Mm. You did not sell me out. No, that gets into the whole issue of the military industrial complex, because the last two presidential candidates that actually took on the military industrial complex were Henry Wallace in 1948, who had been Roosevelt's vice president, and McGovern. And they were destroyed. And we are now uh, watching this conflict in the Ukraine. So I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions there as a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. First of all, we all thought NATO was obsolete because NATO was uh, formed to block Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe, which shows you how naive we were. We thought there really would be a peace dividend. 
that they wouldn't uh, throw staggering amounts of resources and money towards the military, which is totally out of control. Again, it shows you how naive we were. Every politician across the political spectrum, including Henry Kissinger, said, do not expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. It's an unnecessary provocation. George Kennan lived long enough to call it one of the most, the great, I think the greatest mistake of the Cold War. Has anyone asked him to follow up on those statements in this context? I don't know. I don't, I, there's a person I try very hard not to follow. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but it was universally understood. I mean, Hans Dietrich Genscher was the German foreign minister, Margaret Thatcher. They all, they promised Gorbachev. And Clinton then promised uh, the Russian leadership that he would not uh, station, NATO would not station troops. Well, that went down the tubes. I mean, so heavy betrayal. And given Russia's history, I mean, the country was destroyed by the Nazi invasion. And then a century before, Napoleon did the same thing. They and, and the idea that NATO is a defensive force, try that out in Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Syria. I mean, it's just only Americans could believe something that ridiculous. So it was a multi-billion dollar arms bonanza, and they seized it. And with all of the geopolitical consequences understood, I wrote a column for Shearpost a couple of weeks ago that quoted a WikiLeaks cable from 2008 written out of Moscow that said, don't do this, uh, and actually talked about Ukraine being the flashpoint. So it was totally understood. It was like chronicle of a death foretold. Uh, but they did it for money. I mean, it's the same reason we stayed in Afghanistan. The problem is, Alexander Berkman called the military the enemy from within. The problem is we can't, and this is just symptomatic of late empire, we cannot control these forces. And they're stoking conflicts with Russia over, I mean, China, over Taiwan and, and baiting the Chinese in the South China Sea. And this is just crazy. It's just nuts. Uh, and of course, what are they doing in the Ukraine? They're funneling staggering sums of weapons. Germany has lifted its export on weapons. It's tripled its defense budget. It says it will now spend 2% of GDP on defense, which will make the German military the third largest in the world after China and the United States. I mean, this is, it's all insanity. It's kind of like the, you know, the stumbling into the suicidal folly of the First World War. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this is gets off AOC. I, I just don't waste a lot of time on AOC. She's a politician. Uh, I covered these people. I get the game. I know how it but, works. But here, here's, the, here's the issue, Professor Hedges. And this is what we ended up going back and forth about when you were on the show the last time with Shama Sawant. Is that, okay, fine, it's not AOC. And also it's not labor because it's not. Um, developed enough. It's been neutered. It's suffering from 30 years of neglect from the Democratic Party and active suppression. Okay. I think everyone on the left is very adept at saying what it's not. But in lieu of options of what it can be, you do find yourself grasping for straws and grasping for the idea that some of these electeds could rise to the occasion, or at least wanting to expose them to me, it's a win-win, either pressuring someone, the AOC and the squad. I don't always mean to target her. It's a whole, it's all of them. But you either pressure them and, it, and when they fail to meet, you know, the moment, 
it exposes them for what they are and people who still have confidence and faith in them and think that electoralism is going to get out of us are disavowed of that, disabused of that, and we can all move on to something else. Or you pressure them and they actually rise to the occasion. But saying, oh, well, they can't do anything anyway, they don't have power anyway, to me that leaves them to continue to gaslight and manipulate folks into thinking that there is a path through that. That's what politicians do. That's their job, to gaslight and manipulate people. That's, that is a politician. I mean, what do you think the main That's characteristics of a politician is? Brianna, before the show, I told you about Ken Heckler, who was the mm. congressperson from uh, West Virginia and who p passed the black lung legislation. So miners who had black lung, uh, coal miners, would get uh, benefits. And Nixon didn't want to sign it. And so Heckler called a press conference and said, if he doesn't sign it, we'll shut down the coal production tomorrow and there'll be a huge energy crisis. And Nixon couldn't sign it fast enough. He actually told me I didn't know if it was actually going to work. But that's how politics works. That's the game of politics. So why do you think there's no conversations? I mean, look, if you try to raise the idea of just to talk about, just talk about a general strike. General strikes are political strikes. They're not strikes on Amazon. Those are on economic issues. By the time you reach the point of a general strike throughout history, you are attempting to overthrow a, a government. It's I, different. I understand that. I understand that. And we can talk about Amazon in any other given industry. But what I'm not going to do is sit here and like point to random industries and say they should go on strike, right? That's not on me. And that's why I'm talking about a general strike, because I think it's useful rhetorically to get people in that mind frame, to talk about historical examples of those, because ultimately, isn't that what our goal is? And ultimately, what we're talking about is more revolutionary potential than just these one-off strikes. It only comes when you have a highly organized base. So then, then you have a unification of labor movements. So let me ask you this. How do we get a highly unified? I, I really don't want to go in this circle again because I've done it so many times with so many guests, including yourself. But this is this is I, I, I got to get off this carousel. We can't do anything because we don't have a organized well, labor base. We, we can't, can't have an organized anything. labor base because so. So it what is it that it we takes can do? A, it takes a long time to organize. And right. you have Starbucks workers and, you know, it's it's a long process. Uh, it's not a flash mob. Flash mobs don't work. And yet sometimes flash mobs happen and they are successful. Name one. These revolutionaries sometimes, it, I mean, in, in limited ways, France No, they're spectacle. It's Guy, it's Guy Dubourg. It's society is spectacle. Flash mobs, I mean, I, I actually went down to the Washington for the, but what does Trump care? I mean, it didn't. Well, it, let me it, ask it, you this, it, Professor Hedges. What's the example of when the long, slow organizing build has worked? Because nothing's worked. Everything's terrible everywhere. Nothing's well, worked no, by that metric. That's, that's not true. You know, uh, the the Wobblies, the old CIO, the Communist Party, uh, they were very effective. We kind of erased the Communist Party from American history. These were very effective labor movements. In fact, they were so powerful on the eve of World War One that, that uh, Wilson, in the name of supporting the war, passes the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act, not to go after people providing government secrets to the Germans, but to go after the left. That's how Debs ends up in prison. That's how Emma Goldman gets deported. That's how the masses uh, gets uh, shut down. Uh, so, uh, and, and, but that was the culmination of really decades. You go back to the 1890s and the rubber baron issue, it takes a long time to build that stuff up. 
Uh, but it works. With all, with, with all due respect, even if that's true, I think that it is counterproductive to people's investment in any kind of political organization to say that like that. Because I'll tell you what, I care about a lot of things quite a bit. If you tell me it's going to take a long time and not within my lifetime, and it's going to be 40 years down the line, I will happily pack it up and go back and work for corporate America, make as much money as I can and live my life and die. You know, I'll just live my life and die because that's the best I can get. I'm not going to waste my entire life and the little glimpse of animation that I've been granted, the spark of life on this earth, toiling so that maybe 100 years from now, somebody can have a $15 minimum wage. Like, that's not it. it, it you know what I mean? Not, it's not going to take uh, 100 years. But to, to build a solid labor organization is one, two years of really on-the-ground work. Uh, but you're, we're watching it. We're watching it again. It, we in Amazon. We're watching it in Starbucks. Uh, we are seeing it, and and that's you know. And once you build, it's our, the only power we have are numbers and and the ability to throw a wrench into the capitalist machine. But that's why this matters, Professor Hedges. Like I, I appreciate why you don't want to care about Twitter, but the reality is, it's like being in. 1930, 1940, in saying your ability to disseminate your political views through the newspapers or to have any kind of pamphlets disseminated or, or, or conversation pieces out there about what your goals are is irrelevant because you don't like newspaper. I mean, well, that's not people correct, are getting Brianna. their news Brianna, through. Brianna, Brianna, how many characters, what is it, 177 words on Twitter? Is that what you get? It's 240 right? now. It's Is it up to 240? Now, tell me that you can <laughs> yes. actually communicate a serious idea in 240 Professor, I, I, I don't. I don't want to be... There are entire articles that get communicated. The entire media class yeah, is basically sure. only consuming... No one, no one wakes up in the morning and like says, I'm going to open the New York Times anymore. You go to your Twitter feed and you're, you have a curated list of news to read, including people's substacks like your own and like any and David Sirota's and all of that, it comes funneled and aggregated through your timeline based on the people that you follow. And the entire journalistic class, rightly or wrongly, like it or not, is online and creating news cycles based on what is happening online. And it has a trickle down effect through the rest of the media sphere. It right. No. Does. So it's, no, in, that, in that tweets. sense, the, abil the ability to disseminate articles uh, is useful. And, uh, and, you know, I, I am on social media. I don't run my Twitter account, but the, someone else does, and they post all my articles and my interviews and all of that. So being able to disseminate information, uh, but actual education, which has to be part of any radical movement, is very hard to do on social media. Right. But AOC has 11 million followers. And more than that, she has call and text lists with a commensurate a number of people or more. And the question is, what people are arguing about on Twitter right now is whether or not she had an obligation to use that to funnel people to support the Amazon protest uh, strike, to, to support protesters directly who live in her district and beyond, and to be calling for people to come to events like the Medicare for All protests, well, like these student debt protests, and the like. And the reason why it matters is because if 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 what you say is accurate and she's basically been cowed by Nancy Pelosi and the like, and they're all useless, 
that's fi that's fine, well, and good. But the problem is they're still out there publicly presenting us the face of the progressive movement. And they are now, they have audiences and support structures that are far beyond the progressives that got them elected. And yet they're still manifesting them. They're still kind of cosplaying, as some people would say, as leftists. And I think that that ultimately has the possibility to really hurt a genuine left movement. If someone like, and again, I don't mean to, she's just a stand in for the rest, but if someone like an AOC is being held up as this is what a progressive is, when there's actually a genuine appetite for sincere progressivism as evidence through all of these strikes and whatnot. So either you have to fell her and reveal her for who she is, if that's the case, or push her to live up to the potential of what she said she was going to do. Well, she isn't. I mean, I mean, I know a real progressive. His name's Ralph Nader. And look what happened to him. If you're a real progressive and you're not going to sell out, they're going to disappear you. This is a very dirty battle. I mean, especially because of the corruption. I just came back from London with Assange's wedding. Look what they're doing to Julian. If you actually confront the centers of power the way Julian did or the way Snowden did uh, and hurt them, uh, then you get to see how power works and how vicious they are. And I just don't invest energy into AOC. I don't care. When she was elected, I never expected much from her. Yes, you're right, but she's a she's caught up in this kind of celebrity universe of, uh, and she has I'm sure eleven million. I mean, how you know she's she's part of the celebrity culture, uh, but I I don't take her seriously. I don't think anyone else should either. I'm not even saying she's a bad person. I I but that's not where what AOC does or doesn't do is kind of irrelevant. I think. Uh, what's relevant is that we get out and support those people on the ground that are building movements to push back. That's our only hope. I was just telling someone this the other day. Uh, I started writing in part, you know, I was an anonymous attorney in 2016. And I started writing in part because in the context of Bernie's race, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Tom Yusey Coates had written that article critical of Bernie. And basically criticizing him over his reparation stance. And yet I had read in an interview, I'd seen in an interview that he was going to vote for Bernie. And so I tweeted at him from my then, you know, 200 follower Twitter account. Can you please just write an article articulating why it is you're voting for Bernie? Because obviously, despite the criticisms, you think he's the best choice, but everyone's taking your reparations criticism as evidence that he's not the best candidate and he's not the best candidate for black America and all that. And at the time... Todd Nisi Coates was considered to be, you know, he was like the voice of Black America, whatever that means. And he, more importantly, had an enormous influence in kind of white liberal spheres, you know. And he was, he, he what he said was good for Black America is what guilty white liberals were going to believe and then vote accordingly. And he tweeted back at me, I was very surprised, and he said, I can't write every article, you should do it. Now, I was very chagrined. Because obviously nobody gave a damn what I had to say about anything. I was an anonymous human being. And the whole point was that he had this influence, rightly or wrongly. And I wanted him to use it for good since he had already used it for evil, as far as I was concerned, in doing this Bernie hit piece. And then it was particularly hypocritical, in my view, that he would knowingly know that Bernie was the best candidate and vote for him. And yet allow his own words to be used against the candidate that he thought was best for Americans. Okay. 
I did start writing after that because I was pissed off. <laughs> Not that it, I could possibly have any impact in the in the context of the 2016 cycle, but I started a podcast like a month before that election and started writing in 2017 and then we were off to the races. And so I, the maybe I'm wrong and I, I completely acknowledge that I'm wrong. I can, I can be wrong about this or be holding out false hope. But when you do see someone who has influence and is unwilling to use it, and has represented themselves as wanting what you want. It strikes me as a missed opportunity not to press them on those things. And that's why I had Brokana on the podcast this last week. And I wanted to ask you about one clip in particular because you came up. And you came up, Professor Hedges, because we were talking about Russia and Ukraine. And I got to tell you, I was very surprised by how naive, perhaps, he seemed about the whole thing. Maybe it's an act. I talked with Max Blumenthal last night about it on a live stream. And you know, some people thought that it was it was an act. But we were having this back and forth about America's role uh, in the conflict and, you know, whether or not if you want to look through it through a contributory negligence framework or whatever. Obviously, you have to acknowledge that Putin just didn't do this out of nowhere. And if you're interested in making peace, you have to be. You have to engage with what precipitated the war. And he seemed to not know anything about. Victoria Newland or the U.S.'s role in the 2014 Maidan coup. And when I, you know, and he had this exchange, I'm sure you saw, or maybe you didn't see because you're not online, <laughs> with Max Blumenthal, uh, where he asked, he approached him outside a restaurant, asked him some questions. He posted it to the internet saying that Rokana's responses sounded like a neocon. And Rokana responded on Twitter saying that he's like an RT contributor and that Max Blumenthal was basically wrong and incorrect. And the implication of being an RT contributor is obvious, you know. And so um, I said, do you have a problem with RT? And, he's, and what do you think about the RT ban? And he's like, well, I believe in free speech, but I don't understand why anyone would have to go on RT to have a platform when there's all these other places to go. And I said, really? <laughs> really, Congressman Khanna? People like Chris Hedges and Cornell West are, are, say all the time how infrequently they're allowed to go on mainstream networks. Cornell West says basically there's one guy at CNN who will have him on, one host, and that's it. And he says, well, if you're a tenured professor, if you're a Princeton professor, if you're a Harvard professor, I, I have a hard time believing that that's the case. There are places, per perfectly other uh, appropriate places of, of, of dissent, but I don't think we need to give Putin, uh, who is engaged in basically war crimes, a platform. So Chris Hedges is an academic. He's a professor at Princeton, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, longtime journalist at the New York Times, who had a show on RT that was canceled as a consequence of this. Uh, the, the record, the historical record, the archive of these shows in many cases is missing forever. And there have been uh, journalists like Abby Martin, who was recently on Bad Faith podcast, who are quite notable for being openly antagonistic and critical of Russia and Putin in the context of the 2014 coup. Do you see similar, a similar level of criticism of America's involvement and role in the 2014 coup in Ukraine and the mainstream, uh, in the mainstream news? And are you yourself critical of America's role uh, with Victoria Nuland and the like in 2014? Well, first of all, I would defend the Princeton professor or the other journalists ability to uh, have their views. They don't have to go on Russia TV. There are plenty of outlets in the United States or Europe or are other there? places. Absolutely, that they can get on. And I mean, if he's tenured at Princeton, that's a pretty privileged position to, to be in that can uh, have uh, your views heard. And 
Uh, and I, I would defend his right of free, free speech and to publish, to, to be heard, to be on podcasts. What is your response to that? Well, I'm not tenured at Princeton. I'd never make it through a tenure committee. I've done visiting professorships there, three of them. Uh, I mean, most of my teaching is in the prison with Rutgers University, and I'm paid an adjunct salary. In fact, I was giving my salary back until they, it became forbidden for some reason, but it's only like $4,500. So Cornell was denied uh, tenure at Harvard because, for the, like me, he supports BDS. Right. Now, that alone is going to get you. And then, of course, we're both fierce critics of the Democratic Party. So when Cornell began to speak out uh, against actions that Obama was taking, he became a non, not only become a non-person, but he was excoriated on black media. Uh, and that was run out of the White House. Uh, so the idea that there are plenty of places is uh, just an inability to understand the uniformity that has gr gripped the American media uh, on, on all of the major issues. And MSNBC is one of the worst. Uh, yeah. We can start with Julian Assange. Uh, when I sued Obama over Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, in essence, allowing the U.S. military to be used as a domestic police force in American streets, uh, it wasn't covered by Fox or MSNBC or anyone. Actually, in fact, the only two organizations that covered it were Court News, and they did a good job because they cover courts, and my mm -hmm. old employer, the New York Times, which actually we mm -hmm. won, surprisingly, in the Southern District Court in New York. And the New York Times wrote an editorial lauding the decision by uh, Judge Catherine Forrest. It was overturned. Obama immediately appealed it. So if you uh, are a critic of those systems of power without being partisan for one or the other uh, in this climate, you don't have a platform. Uh, and I, look, I understand fully why RT put me on. I'm a fierce critic of, of, of corporate capitalism, of U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism, the endemic racism and white supremacy that governs this country. Uh, and uh, it's the same reason I knew Václav Havel. I covered the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night with him. You wanted to hear Havel, you had to turn on Voice of America. Havel had no more love for Washington's policies than I have for Moscow. But it was that or not be heard. And now I'm in a situation where the only place I can go, like my friends Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, is Substack, because I got to pay the rent. I mean, I can't, you know, you, there are plenty of places to go if you're unpaid, like Shearpost. I mean, Bob Shear's wonderful, and I will stay with him forever, but he's trying to run that thing with his Social Security check. So if I can get enough subscribers, then I'll be able to continue to write my column and will resurrect my television show, which was previously on Telesur, by the way. So it was actually came out of the left, uh, mm. but it's going to be, but, and, and now you're hearing all these calls to shut down Substack for the same reason. For folks who don't know what happened to your show, can you give us a gloss? Right. So it was, it was so look, I was probably finished at RT anyway, because I denounced very publicly the invasion of Ukraine for what it is as a war crime, preemptive war under post Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression. And I was, I wrote it and said it. 
So uh, I didn't expect, like Jesse Ventura, who to his credit did the same thing, uh, uh, didn't expect a long life anymore. RT, the place went dark in six days, but I can't imagine Moscow would have put up with that. I heard you say that's a Lee Camp, and he pushed back a little saying that he's never had any issue being critical of Russia well, on RT. And Abby Martin said, you know, she obviously was very famous, very famously took a stand against the annexation of Crimea. Crimea. Well, I I have a hard time believing that RT would have swallowed, you know, that in the end it was, it wasn't funded completely by Moscow. I mean, they had advertising, Aeroflot, so they, you know, they had, they, I think they made $8 million from advertising before YouTube ripped it down. So there were other sources of income, but they see, received money from the Russian government without question. So they wouldn't have done. Look at what Putin's done in Russia. He wouldn't have swallowed this. I, 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 I had no, I mean, they were very good. They let me do what I wanted. And the very few, I'd, I'd won not one show on Russia. And the few times Putin came up, he was ex described in very unflattering terms. Matt Taibbi wrote a good piece about it and linked to one of those shows with Alan Naren, where he kind of excoriates Russia for the war crimes it committed in Syria, that was, which was broadcast. Uh, so, but that's not why they shut it down. We know why they shut it down. It wasn't because I was doing Russia propaganda. It's because with the 2017 Director of National Intelligence report and those seven pages that were dedicated to RT, they were very specific about why they hated RT. And it's because, and these are their words, you can read it online, they gave a voice to Black Lives Matter activists, uh, Occupy activists, anti-fracking activists, third party candidates, anti-imperialists, anti that's why. And that's why they came from me. Hey YouTube, thanks for watching. Just a reminder that this is a podcast. You can catch an extra premium episode every Monday for $5 a month at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. That's patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast for $5 a month, an extra episode every week. Additionally, please do consider liking this video, subscribing to this channel. It helps us out. It helps independent media beat the algorithm. We appreciate you. And as always, keep the faith.